Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We look back on the last 20 years with one of the world's leading motorsport journalists of that time, Damien Smith. Welcome to another Autosport podcast. We've got a slightly unusual edition this week for you because we're going to be looking back at the last 20 years of motorsport, how things have changed, some of the big highlights, the the major figures, the stars, the Schumachers, etc. The reason for this is my guest, Damien Smith, the European Editor-in-Chief of Autosport Media UK, who is going to be making a slightly sensational career move and moving into teaching. In fact, he will have started his teaching job by the time you hear this. So we thought it'd be a good time to, to speak to Damien, who's been a, a long and loyal servant of Autosport, albeit in three cents. It's kind of a, a Nigel Mansell-esque thing with his three stints with Williams. So so this is Mansell and McLaren period now for you, isn't it? It is really, yeah. I've certainly got the, the, the girth for that as well. So um, yeah, I, I started Autosport in September 1996, and uh, I've been back and forth since that in different different positions and different jobs and different um, different magazines even and different companies but um, uh, I think finally this might be my last my last stint well since I've been here you've been and gone three times so uh, I'm, I'm half expecting a fourth to turn up never say never <laughs> but obviously you're going into a noble profession and we're hoping you're going to indoctrinate the next generation into 
in being enthusiastic about motorsport as well as about English literature. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it goes. I'm going into uh, secondary school teaching to teach English. I'll be in in a, in a school in Surrey and taking my first steps, basically starting again, which is uh, quite daunting. I'm 43 years old, so you could call it a midlife crisis if you like. I don't mind. But um, you're going to be a teacher in a leather jacket, therefore. Yeah, exactly. Yes, uh, the, the cool teacher in the leather jacket. But I'm um, I'm really looking forward to the, the new challenge um, and English and education is something very close to my heart it's always been in the, in the background um it used to be a plan b and i almost became a teacher before i became a journalist actually um but over the last couple of years i've realized it's actually my plan a and it was just a question of timing and uh, now feels like the right time to make the move well let's have a little bit of a look back obviously you said you first joined autosport in 1996 a very different world then the michael schumacher ferrari legend was only just beginning only a few years on from the from the death of Senna and this era of Lewis Hamilton, Sebastian Vettel was was a long way in the future. So tell us a little bit about the motorsport world that you came into and the journalistic world as well. So that season I came in, um, from autosport's perspective, was a very important one because they'd just broken the has Hill been dumped story. Damon Hill, you know, going for the world championship and discovering a copy of autosport, I think around Hockenheim time, that he was losing his drive. And the Grand Prix at the time was Andrew Benson, who's now at the BBC, um, and became a good friend of mine. Yeah, very good journalist. Time. Great journalist. He was still sweating on that story, waiting for the uh, the confirmation, I think, that um, he was right. And it was proven around the time I started, I think it came out, that yes, Williams had indeed sacked him. And uh, Damon had given him a hard time and had thrown him out of the motorhome, I think, at, uh, at Hockenheim. Yeah, I remember um, Damon saying, when he was looking back on it a few years ago, he was saying that at the time he didn't quite understand what the what the media was there to do, and he just thought, well, obviously they should be supporting me. Exactly. That's the mentality he had, and he said the same thing in his book. It's 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 about uh, a, a driver in that situation feels like they should be supported by their national media, whereas you know, the media, never we never think that way. We never think about supporting. We're looking for stories and looking for a way to tell, the, hopefully, the truth and uh, attracting readers and, and uh, it's a very different perspective but Damon being the, the, the great man he is made it up to Andrew and they they became quite close after that I think and uh, a lot of mutual respect there so um, that was an interesting time to come in the sport um, obviously was looking back at it now it's so simple compared to what we what we know of, of Formula 1 today um, but really it was the, it was the start also of um, the sort of second half of Bernie's era I suppose when the sport really kicked in commercially and things were changing dramatically behind the scenes. I mean, the interesting thing about coming into the autosport office at that time um, was it was well, the, the staff was about three times the size it is now, I suppose. There was no email. Um, never mind internet, there was no email. So my first day, I was given a list of numbers for TVR Tuscan drivers and um, National Saloon Cup, Car Cup entrants and told, get on the phone to them and see if there's any news. Everything was done on the phone, and it was a really bustling office. No one had any time for me. It was quite an aggressive place to work. It wasn't a particularly friendly place to work. It had been my dream to work here at Autosport, and it was really hard. It was very tough, and I almost didn't last. But after six months, I suddenly started to feel that um, things were starting to settle down, kick in. I remember there was a night in the pub, which is always a good way to, to break the ice, there was a karaoke machine. I did my Mick Jagger impression, which um, uh, everyone found, found very funny. And it just broke the ice. And uh, after that, you know, it, it got a bit easier. Can't tempt you to do the Mick Jagger impression now. I won't do it now. To need visuals as well as audio. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's the good excuse. excuse. I need, yeah. yeah, so it was it an was, um, uh, interesting time. Obviously, I came in working on, on, on Club. And I'd, I'd done a, a year and a bit as a, as a contributor, as a, as a freelance contributor after finishing university. And I was about to give up and become a teacher when I I got my break. And it was um, touch and go whether I'd get get the chance. And I, I came in and, yeah, eventually 
as you know, it, be, it becomes a way of life. Highly demanding as it is now. A lot of weekend work, obviously, because racing happens at weekends. You have to be uh, you have to be very dedicated to do it. But it was a lot of fun. And looking at the team now today in the All Sport Office, which I'd say pound for pound actually is is one of the best teams that the magazines have, and the website has ever had. You can still see the same echoes from from my my time when I started out. Um, a bunch of people who are very very committed and passionate put a lot of themselves into it, and it isn't just a job; it's a way of life. Actually, the national stuff, club autosport. A few years down the line, I was doing the same pathway, and it's a, it's a great way to get to know the sport and understand the sport. A great chance to get to know some of the up and comers. One of the championships that, while you were on club, it's still in '98, wasn't it? Formula Ford, British Formula Ford, the Jensen Button year. Yeah. Dan Weldon was there, of course. Derek Hayes was the uh, main championship rival to to Jensen Button. I think it was at Silverstone. They had a final round. Head to head, yeah. I think all these years later, that season sticks out in my mind as something uh, I was very fortunate to witness close up. In those days, we shared responsibility for Formula Ford. As a colleague of mine, a good friend, Tim Scott, and I um, shared shared the races between us. So I didn't do them all, but we between us, we saw them all. The thing that I remember about that season, Jensen came in first year in cars out of karting. He had this big, big reputation from karting. Everyone was waiting for this kid, Jensen Button, with this, you know, this strange name to, to come in. Weldon was already established and had been around Formula Ford for a while. Uh, he was in the works Van Diemen's and Jensen was in the works Miguel alongside Irishman Derek Hayes, um, who wasn't really rated as highly, but actually he actually won the European title that yeah, year. Of course he did, um, yeah. And actually beat Jensen to that and was, was a very competitive guy and nice, nice guy as well. The, the interesting thing about Weldon was I, I had quite a tricky relationship with him. I found him quite quite a difficult character because um, he was chippy and, you know, he read everything you wrote and, and um, you know, uh, if you ever criticised him in any way, he'd be on you straight away. And it, it was... It was, it was um, it was a real hotbed for a, for a journalist to go into, um, and you know, at that age, those drivers, everything counts for them, and they're 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 not yet mature as well. So it's um, you know, Jensen was eighteen years old. And he was just, he was just quite a laid back, nice kid actually. That's the thing I remember about him. And obviously, John Button, his dad, was uh, was great fun from the beginning. Um, was he ever present in the Formula Ford paddock as well? Yeah, he was. He was. He was always there, and he he seemed to be a genuine, positive presence. There are some, yeah what you generically call karting dads who yeah. we've all seen in the junior formulas who are not especially yeah. valuable. I only knew John Button when he when he was in Formula One, obviously from yeah. what I was covering Jensen there. But he always seemed to be a very constructive force for, for Jensen. He was the perfect example of what a racing dad should be because when it came to it in terms of engineering the car, he stu- he stepped back and let the guys at Miguel get on with it with Jensen. Um but he loved it. He just absolutely adored racing and you know, obviously I think the father and son relationship of of bonding over over racing is is a is a key part of that I think and and you could see that between them they were very close and the thing about Jensen I remember most about that year was that he made lots of mistakes but he only made them once and he the learning curve he was on was really steep and every time he'd go out you'd see him at the Brands Hatch he was disqualified for overtaking under yellows and um, he didn't do that again uh, there was a race at Snetterton which really sticks in my mind where brilliant ding-dong battle between the two of them Weldon versus Button um, and down the back straight I was standing at the end of the back straight and Weldon had him, had him on the grass nearly every lap and was you know pretty dirty in his tactics with him and at the end of the race Jensen was white in the Park Ferme area and um, I went up to him and had a chat and uh, I realized it wasn't with fear it was with fury you know he was really really angry I've never seen him angry before uh, and he just said sort of quietly um, if that's what I've got to do to to win in cars, I'm going to have to basically man up, and 
again, you thought, right, he's learned a lesson there. That's that's and at the end of the season at the festival, you know, he he had Weldon off at the final corner and won the festival. And the Jensen at the start of the year wouldn't have been able to do that. I don't think I wouldn't have thought of doing that. At the end of the year, he realised if I want to win the festival, I'm going to have to be tough. It was a fascinating season because they were both brilliant, great talents. Um, and, and Weldon, of course, ended up with nowhere really to go except America to, to a lifeline to, to re- restart his career almost in, in America um, in Formula 2000. And that was the start of, led him to the Indy 500 glory and, and, a, a, and his great career over there. We always assumed he'd go into Formula 3, but it didn't happen for him. And of course, for Jensen, he went on straight into Formula 3 and within two years was in Formula 1. It's always difficult looking back to recreate what buzz there was around the drivers because it can be very much retrospective, can't it? Well, of course, that was obvious. Everyone's enthusiastic. I do remember, just purely as a reader at this point, I would have been at, at university when he when he won the Formula Ford Festival. But there did seem to be some genuine enthusiasm about about Button and where he's going to go. If someone said to you the season after next he's going to be in a in a Williams F1 drive, because of course he went British Formula Three, finished third there, then into the Williams after a brief McLaren test through the McLaren Autosport BRDC award which he won, and then some tests for Prost, and then suddenly there he was a Grand Prix driver. Yeah, you could never have predicted that. I mean, I remember asking myself time and again, is this hype? Is there, um, and then looking at him every weekend and thinking, no, he's he's good. There's definitely, this isn't just hype, he, he has got the ability. And at the end of the year, he won the Autosport, um, McLaren Autosport Young Driver Award quite easily and was far and away the best driver of that year. I was given the job of asking Ron Dennis about him at the Autosport Awards. At the end of the night, I, I um, cautiously approached the table. And be fair to Ron, he always gave you time. And he, on that occasion, um, he turned around and did speak to me and I asked him, you know, how long do you think it can be for Jensen to get to Formula One? And Ron said three years, which I was quite taken aback by. And I, I caught Jensen in a lift after after the uh, the evening. He was about to go up to his hotel room to get changed. I think he was going to go out on the town. And I said to him, Ron, Ron's just told me you can get to Formula One in three years. He's like, did he, did he really say that? And, you know, he was like, you know, really chuffed with that. that. And that actually got my, my first Autosport top story because on the, on the Monday morning I got into the office and I, I told the guys what Ron had said and they said right that's 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 great quiet time of year it's December let's let's spin a story out of that and of who, course, who'd have thought that was conservative yeah exactly <laughs> it was and it was you know and um the F3 season he had a tough F3 season in the in the uh, the Primatechnic Renault you know didn't win the championship Mark Mark Hines won the championship yeah. of course Luciano Berti was second Berti wasn't he? was second so he was third and and he only won a few races but again, the, the talent was there. He was on this really steep learning curve, and you could see that the potential was there. I mean, that, for me, that's what junior single-seaters is all about. It's not just about results. It's about showing you've got the potential to grow and that you're not the finished article. And it's, you, know, you look at, there's a lot of talk at the moment about people like Leclerc and Giovinazzi and, um, uh, and what have you, and you know, Lando Norris. And it's until they get in a Formula 1 car, you really don't know. Uh, and that's the thing that impressed everyone with Lando Norris recently, was that he clearly did a very good job in that McLaren. Um, and with Jensen, it was the case of he got in the Prost, and Alan was seriously impressed. And you thought, okay, so this is all falling into place. And suddenly that snowball started to roll, and the Williams opportunity came up with a shootout with Junquera. Suddenly he was on the grid in Melbourne, and it was almost hard to believe. And the, in- the interesting thing about that 2000 season, I remember seeing him at the airport at Imola, I was picking up my bags, and I was there for the first round of the F3000 Championship that year. And he was there as a, a fully fledged Williams Grand Prix driver coming to the first his first European Grand Prix, and suddenly he'd, his neck had grown uh, and the slight skinny little kid that I'd known had suddenly become a, uh, a Formula 1 driver with a, with a thicker neck and, and you could see his upper body muscle strength had, had, had grown in a, in a matter of a few months and uh, he was on the way. I guess it was just interesting 
then to see his his progress obviously you you did the 10 grand prix and did some grand prix coverage in that time so yeah. certainly in his in his earlier years for also sport and then later on when you were with with motorsport you still turn up at grand prix yeah and then latterly back with autosport when he's even briefly appeared this year it's a fascinating story actually the whole jensen button story isn't it it's gonna be interesting to read his book that's coming out because when you actually look at it from afar you almost couldn't script it could you that sudden promotion and then the yeah. the difficult years and the the almost vanishing when honda went down to suddenly back with braun then mclaren stalwart it's it's a remarkable story it is a remarkable story and i i, I admire the way he's handled himself over the over the 20 years um our careers have basically been in parallel um i wouldn't say i know jensen button i knew him quite well back then but once they get to formula one you kind of lose track a little bit of each other and you know he would see me and he might nod to me now in a press conference but you know i wouldn't ever claim to to, to know him well at all but back then he was a really nice kid who had lots of potential and i think he 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 delivered on on that potential and i think that's all that any 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 racing driver can do is make the most of what they've got and you've got to say that someone like jensen button did exactly that i guess we should also go back to dan weldon as well obviously he had a remarkable career in the states indycar champion fantastic in the indianapolis 500 and obviously his his tragic end yeah that's a whole different kind of trajectory having worked with him earlier on obviously not got on with him quite as well as with yeah. someone like jensen but again that would have been an amazing thing to see and then obviously even with the the horrendous end yeah i mean i think um i should say i never saw journalism as a way to be- befriend racing drivers i've never been interested in it shouldn't be that isn't at it? all no but you obviously do develop different relationships with different people i used to get on okay with dan but every now and again you'd, you'd catch him at the wrong time or you'd written something you didn't like and it would just be a bit awkward for a few few weeks um, I don't think you were unique in that, from what I hear. No, he was he was a tricky character. And after he went to America, he was in a tough position and he had to really scrape hard through the, the junior categories in America to, to get into IndyCar. And at that time, you'd see him every now and again when, he, when he'd come back and suddenly he was more friendly because he he kind of needed us to, to, to write about him and keep keep the, the European audience in touch with what he was up to. And uh, and then I saw him a couple of times in IndyCar and he'd, he'd gone back to being a little bit uh, cocky again and you know he was um wasn't overly friendly with someone like Dario Franchitti if you bumped into him he would he would you he, he he'd make so much time for you and he'd stand and chat and um he was still Dario you know he was still the same guy Dan was a bit more complicated I'd say um and again I don't pretend that I knew him well I, I didn't and when he died I was in shock as much as any anyone I think any racing driver is, is killed it's it's a horrendous punch in the gut for everyone who works in the sport and for fans and for anyone who's 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 interested and when you've got a slight connection like i may have done many years ago it did bring back a lot of memories and um you know i admired him greatly for his grit and determination i always thought he was a little bit of a mansell character in that sense you know a real um typical british racing driver who had to scrape every way to get opportunities make the most of the chances he got um and had a, a huge dose of talent to go with it Great, yeah, a great guy. The last time I saw him was the Festival of Speed that year, the year he died, because he, he came over for it, and um, I didn't actually get to talk to him. He he passed me in a crowd of people, and I saw this figure, and he was striding very quickly uh, towards the driver pavilion, and uh, you know I noticed the the very straight white teeth, which he hadn't had when I'd known him, <laughs> and uh, uh, you know he'd become the fully fledged American superstar in a way. It was quite nice to see, was, and I thought you know he was clearly on the cusp of a ne- you know a, a next chapter for his career tragically it didn't happen that way you also got to cover f3000 
in the early years of the, the, the 21st century. Again, some interesting drivers there. Fernando Alonso's season uh, with Astra Mega. Yep. Obviously, the, the great championship battle in 2000. Bruno Jancaro, Nicola Manassian, Mark yep. Webber was in that yep. in that season as well. So again, drivers at kind of an in-between stage of their career, not quite the very start, but not quite quite yep. in F1. Obviously, someone like Alonso really struck people that year, didn't he? Yeah, his year was 2000 with Astromiga, and he, um, he'd come out of Formula Nissan, which he'd, he'd won. Um, we didn't know a lot about him. He was still fairly unknown, really, uh, in the, on, the, on the sort of international scene. And he didn't speak much English. So when he was at Astromiga... Or maybe he told me he didn't speak much English. Maybe that was the, the truth. But no, I mean, the, the, the team um, run by a great British guy called Sam Boyle, who was a, a top guy, and um, they loved running him. They were they were raving about him from the first first test and said, this guy's special. And they kept telling me, you've got to keep an eye on him. He's, he's, he's going to be good. And of course, at the end of the year, he won a couple of races at the end of the year. It took a while for it all to gel. From there, he became a... a he was into Minardi, wasn't he, in 2001. So um, very rapid rise, actually for Alonso and um, again you could see there was something about him he was he, the way he carried himself the way he handled himself you can never know just how good they are at that stage because he was still developing um, but I remember interviewing him in Brazil in 01 when he was at Minardi and suddenly his English had come on I don't think he's changed very much he was very polite very reserved didn't give away too much but gave away enough that he wanted to get across whatever you know, whatever his message was at the time which is a trait you saw in Formula One as well. Exactly. He was very, very good at getting his message across without necessarily saying it. Yeah, he, so he can never be pulled up for, for for saying what he thought, even though he communicated it, which was very clever. He's a he's a he's a politician and unashamedly so. And, and, and why not? I think drivers drivers have to play the game, and and Alonso knows how to play the game. In two thousand and one, you also had the year that that Justin Wilson won the championship. His championship battle, sort of, with Mark Webber, obviously quite a big points gap in the end because Weber had a, a unfortunate end to the season two drivers there that went on to to achieve a great deal sadly Justin Wilson another one who yeah who, who met a tragic end but that was quite unexpected wasn't it what Wilson did did that season because he'd come into Formula 3000 a few years before off the back mm. of winning Formula Palmer Audi because the prize there that's Donald right Palmer had promised yep. a full season in yep. 3000 and unlike 90 percent of prize drives you and I both worked on the uh, national section of autosport. How many prize drives are there promised that are never yep. delivered or prize tests? Yeah, most of them normally, but that was delivered, and that season Wilson had was was remarkable, isn't it? Right from the start, winning Interlagos. Yeah, I think I think Justin's career was um, uh, a big part of my my working life in those those first few years of my of my career. Was um, Justin was a big part of it because I'd, I'd seen him in Formula Vauxhall uh, with with Stuart, and he'd been over um, overshadowed by Luciano Berti. And he had there was a, an occasion at Silverstone when Jackie Stewart on the commentary said that he'd make a good touring car driver because he was so tall and he was he was devastated by that. You know, Palmer picked him up in in Palmer Audi and he was brilliant in Palmer Audi. And he, I remember he seeing that. again before I worked at Auto, so I went to the finale yeah. at Donington. I think there was there were several drivers in contention for the championship. I remember yeah. I remember watching like at McLean's. You could sit even to just as a sort of pure fan who hadn't got the experience of of watching tracks live that you get later you could see that kind of turn into apex speed yeah was remarkable and yeah. i've spoken to a few drivers who are up against him there because they could all see each other's data yeah they said it was it was marked how good he was yeah yeah he was he was fantastic he really was and he deserved that um that chance and palmer recognized it give give due credit to jonathan palmer he does actually deliver on what he says and he said there was be a prize drive it was and he became justin's manager all the way through that year in 01, when he won the title with uh, with Nordic, Nordic had never won a race. They were run by 
Derek and Chris Mower. Derek was a, a veteran of, of motor racing and been around for donkey's years. So that was a nice story, the fact that this team with Justin was winning races, sponsored by Coca-Cola. And of course it was. Everyone yeah. was, where Where the hell did they get Coca-Cola money from? But I remember from memory, it was almost by chance that they ended up with, with, the, with a Coke deal. It wasn't for a lot of money, I don't think. They had all the requirements of... Uh, to become a winning team that year and Justin took his chance and that was the thing that impressed me and the nice thing about the rivalry with him and Weber was the mutual respect I think that Weber uh, Weber made a lot of mistakes that year because he was in with Supernova I got to know Mark in, in 2000 with Paul Stoddart's European aviation team and the first race was at Imola and he finished third on the podium and this was his first race after Le Mans flips um, in the of course Mercedes. it was so that was a big deal for him because his career he thought after the Mercedes thing was was pretty much finished and um, the 3000 deal with fellow Australian Stoddart had given him a second chance and first time out on the podium I remember interviewing him in, in the truck afterwards and did a did a short snap um, interview report along with my race report um, in next week's autosport which he was really grateful for you know and um, so we, we always got on pretty well Mark was very open with um, his views as he is now same character he is now, absolutely, you know, fully formed back then. In O one he made a lot of mistakes, was was championship favourite with Supernova and, and lost the title to Justin and was very magnanimous about it, you know, and um Justin did a better job. It was a it was a lovely year to, to report on and a very impressive champion and you, you had high hopes for Justin. And from there he had a he had a struggle, you know, and the, the Jaguar thing when it finally came didn't work out and it was great to see him reinvent himself in America. Uh, and as a character, you know, he was dyslexic, he was shy, um, this tall beanpole from Sheffield. Another another guy with a lovely dad, by the way. Um, his dad was always always there, a great supporter, but again, stepped back and kept out of the way. I, I don't want this podcast to be too morbid about, about drivers who've died, but his his death did, did hit a lot of us very hard because he was such a genuinely decent man and, and become a family man. And um, it was awful. That was just awful. Yeah. It's also amazing, really, looking back at the career he had in the US, that he, he didn't have more success. He only won seven races, not really through his own fault. That, that's probably more races than he should have won with some of the machinery he had. But he was always unfortunate, wasn't he? Just the wrong place at the wrong time. The classic example being when he was signed by Newman Haas, guaranteed to win the 2008 Champ Car title, basically. But of course, that season never happened because the American single-seater split was removed and and it was it was IndyCar so he was in a Newman Husk car that was struggling to adapt to the, to the IRL car so that's kind of symptomatic of the misfortune he had there because he sh- he should have been he should have been a champion there yeah I th- I think also that that highlights uh, a theme I think that goes through motor racing through every era is that it's really hard to win motor races at whatever level you're at. Uh, whether it's a, a club level or or at the top level, um, you know, remember those those lines that Vettel said at the end of one of his Red Bull championships about enjoy these days because you know they won't always be here, or uh, when he was not on the, on the on the team radio, and he was so right. You know, though, you you have to enjoy every moment, and Justin, he had to battle through for every win because, as you say, he was unlucky with his timing at different teams, and he he had to work for every break he had. And uh, he should have won more races. But everyone knew the talent. Everyone, he had a lot of respect in IndyCar, the same as he'd had over in Europe when he was racing over here uh, as a young lad. You know, he he had immense ability. And one of the things that was, uh, I, mean, I used this um, in the aftermath of his death when I was working at motorsport, was um, his old Formula Vauxhall engineer, Andy Pycock, who worked at PSR, contacted me out of the blue. 
and he'd been out of motor racing for about 10 years hadn't spoken to anyone in motor racing for all that time and just wanted to talk about justin and it was quite a nice little interview to, to talk to his old engineer all these years later and I, I suspect i don't know for certain but i suspect the things that andy told me on that that phone call would probably ring true for any engineer who'd worked with him in indycar you know he, he didn't drivers don't tend to change very much they develop and they they improve but they don't uh, they don't change i don't think but also at this time this is the the peak of the schumacher era once you get into the the first half of the the first decade of the 21st century schumacher dominating for ferrari which which built a legend uh, also a difficult time in some ways for for formula one interest certainly the seasons where he utterly dominated 2004 2002 mm. in particular yeah you covered some formula one during that period you also had some dealings with with schumacher so how do you look back on that that schumacher era because it's one of those things that people look back and say it was brilliant mm. but at the time there was a lot of complaints going on about yeah. the same person winning um it it, it wasn't brilliant um, in terms of the the racing, I don't think you know there were there were some very good races in that period, especially when Williams had their competitive years. And two thousand three was a really good season. Yeah, exactly, and it was quite hard <laughs> at times uh, because you almost knew knew who was going to win before you left for the airport. You know, so that was uh, when you're working for a, a magazine dedicated to a sport and you're you're trying to obviously give an accurate depiction of what's happening, but you're also trying to sell sell magazines for business it it wasn't easy at times but at the same time I remember thinking to myself soak this up and take this in because this hasn't happened before to this level uh this this is this is something special in terms of achievement and someone who you know I always thought Mick Doohan in motorbikes uh, in the 90s you know he dominated 500s and Schumacher was a bit of a Mick Doohan figure for me character wise obviously he didn't give much away uh, he would run between the motorhome and the, the truck, um, and you know you wouldn't see a lot of him in the paddock. He wasn't he wasn't a sociable guy at all. Um, so you only got little glimpses. Um, I, I was lucky enough uh, one Grand Prix. I think it was a an Nurburgring race. I'm trying to remember. I can't remember which year it was now. But he'd won the Grand Prix, and I thought I'd dive down into the paddock to try and get a few quick quotes from people stepping out of cars and and what have you. And the rest of the media were all upstairs in the media room tapping out reports or waiting for the press conference or the, and the podium and he he came through into the in, uh, I was at the bottom of the stairwell and I just stepped back and saw him come through and Ross Braun greeted him and there was no one else around us and I was kind of in the, in the background keeping well out of the way and they just had this massive bear hug as they used to because they you know they both loved winning that was the thing that I remember about the two of them uh, and you really saw the, the sort of a sense of achievement between them the the the, the how close they were as, as a duo that was that was. I almost felt like I was a, a voyeur. And I was. I shouldn't have been there. You know, it was a, a moment I shouldn't have witnessed. Um, but it was a little glimpse of that that winning mentality that that that, that drove them on together as a, as a partnership, which was a, a privilege to to witness. You know, I think the point you make about trying to enjoy it and actually appreciate it is yeah. is important because sometimes seeing brilliance is quite dull yeah. fundamentally because yeah. it is predictable because they are so good. Yeah, I mean, I think the, th- the thing about Schumacher was he-, he loved winning so much, as we know, and it-, it would take him some time over the line of what was acceptable in terms of behaviour on track. But I always admired the fact that he 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 you know he took the most out of those ninety-one wins and wasn't afraid to show it on the podium. And I guess sometimes I feel you know when when a modern driver wins a Grand Prix, if it's a Lewis Hamilton, and he he doesn't quite show enough emotion that you want on the podium. I, I hope he's I hope he's savoring every every one of them i think he probably is to be honest but you know it um there's no harm in enjoying winning it's what it's all about and as i say earlier it's you know 
it's so hard to do. Even even in those those times, they had to work really hard to get to get those victories. You know, everyone. I think the, the Schumacher legacy got a little bit tarnished. Um, certainly during uh, his Mercedes stint, that people said, "Well, you remember at Ferrari, he built the team around him. He had special Bridgestone tires. You know, he had everything on his plate to win. You know, he had a um, favoritism in the team when he was number one." That those things didn't happen by chance, you know. That, that was that was the way that uh, he and the team around him, he galvanized the team around him, he made it happen for himself. And you you just you cannot. I I think it's un, unfair to 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 um, have that revisionist view of of a um, the man at his height. He was he was very very special, and I, I feel privileged to have been around to see him. But Schumacher is an interesting one, isn't it? Because it always comes down to the the ruthlessness you mentioned with Button. And Weldon at the Formula Ford Festival, recognising that ruthless edge. And mm. while you want good on-track ethics, etc., there is also doing the kind of jobs we're doing and seeing these elite athletes up close and how they perform. Maybe you gain a bit more respect for the willingness to go to those extremes. Yeah. You know, the Monaco qualifying thing when he parked at Raskas, yeah. completely wrong. Yeah. But there's a little part of you that says, well, do you know, all credit for you, mm. in a way, for having for being so determined to, to win. You're willing yeah. to overstep that. There, There is a a quality in that that isn't completely pure, shall we say? But yeah, I was at Monaco that year of the Rascast thing. That was one of my, that is one of my memories actually that I'll take away from when, I, when I'm in a in a, uh, a classroom on a th- wet Thursday afternoon. Maybe I'll re- <laughs> reflect on it. But that was a, an amazing weekend because when it happened, I remember we were all in the in the in the press room and looked at each other. And went, did he just do that on purpose? And it, it looked really fishy. It looked really odd. And it was it was quite badly executed. It was actually. terribly done. Yeah, to drive into the wall. Right? Absolutely, very very clumsy. Um, and it clearly, I always thought it wasn't something he'd he'd thought about long and hard. I'm going to do this. It was just instinct. And that's the thing about Schumacher. He was he lived on instinct. And when he drove into Villeneuve in '97 at Jerez, it was the same thing. He just like I've got you know he wasn't consciously thinking I've got to do this. He just he did it because that's what was required at the time. He he felt that was what was required at the time. Um, uh, and didn't really consider whether it was right or wrong. That was the thing about well, him. Well, that's what these these arch competitors do. Yeah, they calculate the what works, the the risk versus reward, what will benefit, what will get the ultimate result, and kind of the ethics don't necessarily come into it. No, no, come to it later on. I remember another example uh, from a little bit earlier in two thousand two. Obviously, the Austrian Grand Prix where Rubens was ordered to move aside for Schumacher, and he did it right at the, at the last corner to yep. to maximise the. The unhappiness and it was quite interesting actually seeing the you could see Schumacher when he was on the podium sort of realizing what the response was from people because yeah. I guess it wouldn't really have occurred to him at the time that's how the outside was was seeing it and then he sort of realized that it sort of shows where where that is in the in the priorities it doesn't mean they're fundamentally being unethical or whatever yeah but sometimes if you're going to be that ruthless and focused and determined and looking at ways to achieve yeah sometimes you will get your wires crossed and do that or driving to Damon Hill at Adelaide or something yeah obviously yeah. wrong but yeah yeah I think the ethics thing is is, a, is an interesting one when you, got, when you get to the real the top level drivers because um, ethics are all very well but they're, it's not something they're, they're thinking about too too much I don't think to be honest because all they're, they're really focused on is, is how to how to win they're, hung, they're so hungry for it you know and that day at um, at Monaco he came through the, the media centre on the way to the press conference with his usual big grin on his face and looked very pleased with himself and he sat in the media um, media room and I went through to to see how, how it was all going to pan out. And the tabloid journalist Byron Young 
Um, he's famous. He was always good for getting to the point question. He did, yeah. He basically stood up and said, uh, he was just behind me, he said, did you cheat today, Michael? <laughs> Michael's face froze. And Weber, I think, was next to him. Uh, I think he'd qualified second or third, if I'm remembering. So he was, in, he was in the press conference with him, and he said Michael's hand just started to shake slightly, and he thought, you know, got him it basically he'd been rumbled and he you know and then the afternoon then was 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 fairly hilarious because we were all waiting for an announcement of a penalty and in the meantime talking to any driver who'd speak about what they thought about it and someone like Jacques Villeneuve who obviously never never had any time for Schumacher and had a bit of history with him himself laid the boot in so you know um for for us dastardly journalists there was stories aplenty that afternoon and we had to wait until about 11 o'clock at night for the for the uh, the penalty to finally be announced, and there was a scrum and it was all chaos. And I filed a story for the for the website. Uh, missed my last train back to Nice and had to get a euro eighty euro cab back to Nice. Which, um, but it was all. I think we've all been caught by something like that. In yeah, Monaco one time exactly. But it was it was one of those memorable things. I thought I, w- I won't forget this. This is this is a, this is quite a funny day to be to be here in Formula One. How about kind of later days in in Formula One? Obviously, you've been sort of in and out of it mm. during the days with motorsport and, and also sport there's a lot of talk about what f1 is now there's always this this thing about how the past was better i think the past because it gets kind of distilled down into a series of little highlights yeah clips like a five minute youtube video of the, the best of 1992 will always look better than watching a full race this year that might not be the most most eventful but for me formula one still has the the same appeal it's still basically the same thing rules change things change sometimes yeah. you have seasons where people dominate sometimes you don't but it, it's still got that, yeah. that magic hasn't it it does i mean i think I, I struggled with it a bit through some of the prelly years um with the degrading tires and, and drivers having to back off through through races to get to the end and, and i guess i think for you know anyone listening to this would probably um, feel the same way that you know, your, your view of anything changes as you get older and you can never uh, see the sport in the same way you did when you first fell in love with it you know so it's all new isn't it though? yeah exactly and it's and it's exotic and it's 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 exciting um, and for me being involved in the sport I've been very privileged to get get quite close to it and see it from from close quarters and it's bound to change your perspective and I'm, I'm now 43 so I'm at a different stage of life so it's quite hard I always I wonder how I'd look at it if I'd never got my job and I'd actually been teaching for the last 20 years how I'd view the sport and if I'd if I'd still love it in the same way and I wouldn't I probably wouldn't because I'm you, you, you change as you get older you'd probably be quitting teaching to become a journalist yeah probably would be probably would be yeah exactly yeah um the thing that is a privilege of doing this is is getting a, a tabard and being able to go trackside and this year there were a couple of occasions um Barcelona I always think it's actually a really good circuit to watch at. If you're lucky enough to to have a tabard, you can get much closer to the cars and uh, some some great corners. Underrated place. Again, perceptions change over over time. When it was first introduced as a race circuit, everyone thought it was quite bland. But now I think it's it's a bit of a European classic now. So all these years later. So, um, but I, I, you know, standing trackside at, at there and at the A1 ring as well. I, I was at that race this year, um, and I was kind of aware that the teaching thing was on my mind at the time. So I was thinking enjoy this because this might be your last season doing this so I just stepped back and just let it soak it all up and especially this year with the cars as they are it's still spectacular it's still it still gets you going you know um they're not as noisy as they used to be blah 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 I don't it, it, they're still great Formula One's still Formula One for me um hopefully I don't, I don't think it'll ever lose that I don't think it will the thing that always appeals to me about this job is that, like you say, you get to see see it up close and you get to understand it in a way 
you never otherwise would simply because you can spend huge amounts of time just asking questions understanding seeing yeah. seeing what works and for me the great appeal of the job actually is trying to communicate that to the fans who have got all this enthusiasm but can't get can't yeah. get that close and for all the criticism there will be of journalists and opinions etc in my experience a good percentage of those who are certainly covering motorsport are trying to do the same thing they're just trying to share that enthusiasm that, that drives everyone really yeah yeah i think one of the things that i i struggle with you know, i must admit I've, I've fallen out of love a little bit with media i'm ready to move on from working in the media um and i don't quite understand the way that fans these days can be so obsessed with one driver or one team it's a bit you know it's a bit like football in a way that you you've got your team and and they can do no wrong or your driver and they can do no wrong and i never really looked at motor racing in that way the thing i love about motor racing and and i hope it still it still keeps is that it's, it it doesn't it it shouldn't conform and the drivers are supposed to be rebels and they're supposed to be these characters who live a weird lifestyle that you know that the rest of us can't really relate to you know the, the whole corporate thing of formula 1 it, it, you know to to have the money that the sport has it has to has to call sponsors and become very, very um, PR friendly. But that goes against every instinct of what motor racing is all about, really, in essence. And I love seeing it when a situation pushes those barriers back and, and shows the, the true colours of these guys and the people involved. Uh, and the thing is, actually, underneath that, that shiny surface, it hasn't changed at all. That's the thing I love about it. The sport hasn't changed really in, in its essence despite all the nonsense that you might see on the on the surface and and this year i think we, you know, we, we were extremely lucky and fortunate to see two great drivers going head to head in two different different teams because that hasn't happened for a while so you know the vettel hamilton thing is is terrific you know and the you know, spa grand prix wasn't a great wheel to wheel battle but the tension was was fantastic and barcelona this year when i, when I, when I was at, the, at that race uh that was a fantastic grand prix to witness and to watch and to to um to savor, uh, so we've got a lot to be positive about. Actually, the sport has a lot to be positive about, and I think me me moving on from it is is more a reflection on me than the sport. I'd say certainly, yeah. You mentioned the the kind of media side, so falling out of love with it a bit. I mean, it's changing, continuing to change a huge amount. And there's some, there's still some massively good stuff being produced and being done. There's also a lot of less good stuff, should we say? But it's worth reflecting in that basically twenty year period. So when you joined Autosport in 96, I think 96 was the first year Autosport.com appeared, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, so you were there for, for the start of it, which I imagine was very much a sort of back room on the edge. Yeah. So sort of, well, it wasn't, it was a, even a different, there was not a, even in the same office, was it at that stage? Well, there was, there was an AOL site that, um, Autosportmag.com. Something like that. Right. Yeah. I can't remember now, but yeah. Um, but the, the, the AOL site was, was horrendous to update because I was asked on a, it was a launch of the 97 Prost um, to upload a picture onto this site, all of which three people would look at, I suspect, back then. Um, but you had to put in a load of code. And I think I must have been getting a, a backslash and a forward slash wrong. And I spent all afternoon trying to upload this picture, and it just would not work. And um, I, I was almost in tears by the end of the <laughs> afternoon. And it was just it was just so, so painful. And and the audience was tiny. But to be fair to Autosport, it was, it was um, embraced digital media very early and um, I think we did a lot of good work in those early years of, of uh, building a reputation which is why the Autosport website is so successful today I think the, the, the grounding was all back then and it's been developed incredibly and the thing that I've been impressed with coming back and I'm not just blowing smoke head but it's it's um, uh, the highly organized efficient way of running a, uh, a website and um, I think you can still count on Autosport I hope um, I, 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 I believe so for, for, for giving some sort of genuine view of, of what's going on 
the thing I would definitely say is for all of the so you get the social media response, etc., and people complaining about agendas, this, that, and the other. I don't know anyone if they write, say, an opinion piece, isn't writing an honestly held opinion. It may be wrong, and some of them will be. Yeah. In fact, we have different opinions um, turning up on the website. It's one of the things people get a bit confused about sometimes. That uh, one minute Nigel Robick will write something, and the next week I'll write something that appears to disagree with that because you have individual yeah. author voice. But it's the same with news as well. If a news story is published and written, it's because the effort has gone into it to say that it is correct. Mm. Just to blow our own trumpet a bit, we do try and do that. And I feel that's the, the most positive thing for all the fact the media's changed. Autosport, the values remain, remain the, same, the same, I think, anyway. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree with that. So it's funny you know, reflecting on 20 years of motor racing, and a lot has changed, but there's a lot actually that's still the same. And it doesn't just go back 20 years, it goes back further, I think. We should also maybe look a little bit away from single-seaters. We've talked about that a lot. Obviously, you covered Le Mans many times. See, this is the era of Audi yeah. dominance of Le Mans, 13 wins in that in that period. Um, and I know on and off you've been a, a regular at, at Le Mans yeah, during I, that period. I only really missed a, a few few races at Le Mans. My first Le Mans was 98. Um, I never got to go as a fan, always wanted to, and I got my chance when I was on the Autosport staff to go and help be part of the coverage back in 98. And I, I went most years then um, sports car racing was always close to my heart so it was something I always enjoyed watching as a, as a um, growing up in the Group C era and I've, I've loved covering it because the thing about it is it's quite nuanced obviously there's a lot of different factors different classes wide range of drivers uh, which is one of the, the things that really appeals to me is that you get these you get the top line guys who may maybe have been in Formula 1 and come out the other side or didn't quite make it to Formula 1 and should have done someone like Tom Christensen, the obvious example, tend to have great personalities as well, so they're, they're good fun and entertaining racing. It's been a patchy era, I suppose, that I've, I've lived through in terms of working in it. As you say, the Audi dominance was, was a big factor, but they had to work very hard for every one of those wins, and I always had a, a huge amount of respect for them. I covered Sebring 99, which I think was the first race for the R8R. They finished third, but they hadn't been a contender in that race at all. BMW were, um, won that race. I remember my report. I think I was a little bit dismissive of them actually, um, because because everyone's seen this this team come in very serious, coming out of British touring cars and now going into sports cars, throwing everything at it. You can you could clear, clearly see the standards were being raised in terms of the professionalism of what they were trying to achieve. In a way, it was kind of nice that they didn't didn't just come in straight away and start winning. It was they had to work really hard at it, and they had a a tough first year in '99. That reflects the benefits of a brand of doing that because Audi was a saloon car racing brand, really, wasn't it? Yeah. So. Audi now is synonymous with Le Mans, but yeah. back then it just wasn't. It wasn't at all. No. So it tells you the transformative effect, because could you have a car like the Audi R8 on the road no. if it wasn't for the, the, the racing Audi R8 that started it all? That's right. You know, and the they were very much the third German brand then, you know, behind BMW and Mercedes. Now, you wouldn't really say they were third. You would, you know, it's quite hard to separate the three of them, I'd say. And, and that's, that's a lot of that for me is down to Le Mans and, and to the sports car programs. The ALMS during that period, fantastic races, and, and that, that was a great championship era. that really knew what it was doing. Wasn't yeah, it? yeah, really, really good. And uh, as I say, a great bunch of drivers as well. Um, so it was always a pleasure covering Le Mans. Um, and also, my my first Le Mans, my first couple, we would go out during the practice nights and, and go out to watch on track. And you just to get down to the um, on the Molson and get through the the golf club. And actually get down to the barrier next to next to the Molson Street and be right right alongside the cars, which you can't really do anymore. I don't think. 
some of them are probably write it and say you can, but as far as I'm aware, it's much harder to get to get close to the barriers now. And you know, at, um, and up at Indianapolis at the same time on the inside of Indianapolis, getting up uh, and, and the marshals would blow their whistles, and you'd have to jump back into the bushes and then move a bit further along up the the track. But Le Mans changed a lot in my 20 years. I guess the circuits obviously changed. They've they've tried to they've had to make it safer. They've tried not to lose the spirit of Le Mans. I think they've actually been pretty successful at that overall. I always preferred the old S's, but the new one, what a great bit of track the new one is, actually. And it's ageing very well, you know, swooping under the Dunlop, Dunlop Bridge. Um, it's, Le Mans still, for me, is, is the, the race that matters. Uh, and until this year, I hadn't been to the Indy 500. And I guess the, the thing I'll take most from this year, my last year as a journalist, is was the Indy 500 experience that you and I shared. Actually, you were there as well. Oh, it's brilliant, wasn't it? What a fantastic thing to see and um, a spectacle and the place. And the, for us Europeans, not used to seeing oval races week in week out, you have to recalibrate your brain not to see a car breaking into a into a corner. You know, just everything about it. And the Alonso factor obviously was 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 fantastic. But those big set piece races, Le Mans and Indy great long way they continue i think that's the important thing isn't it also being able to transmit these sort of races to tv audiences and that kind of thing i think that's an area maybe where motorsport sometimes doesn't do itself justice it's amazing to me that all these years later tv still fails to get across the spectacle of of motor racing it does such a bad job at it that's formula one as much as anything you know they, they 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 still haven't got it right maybe they never never can maybe you you can't but you, I still think they could do a lot better. Just camera angles, being being closer to the the, the, the level of the of the cars from a from a from a, a viewpoint that you get from being uh, just behind the barriers. It's completely different. I still think there are enough places on circuits to to get a real feel for what what's actually going on much more than they do at the moment. Yeah, we talked a lot about lots of different champions great races etc etc but there are only kind of slightly more offbeat stories things you've done obviously we get to we get the chance to do all sorts of interesting features and go to interesting places for for things and there are always some interesting things crop up in those is there anything that springs to mind as a an odd experience i i should just say at this point i'd like everybody to go and check out a video you did when you were in motorsport when you're rally co-driving <laughs> which has yeah. the one of the, the best bits of pace notes I, i've ever heard well, yeah, I think I, I I know this is um a motorsport network uh, production, but um I, I I can't help but talk about my time at Motorsport Magazine because that was a huge part of my life, my career, and something I'll take I'll be very proud of and fond of for for years to come. Um, and I had some great experiences there. The, the difference is at Motorsport, I guess, being a monthly magazine, slightly different agenda to um, life at Autosport and F1 racing. Um. You know, when you're at these magazines and websites that we're, we're working on today, um, yeah, your nose is pressed right up against it, and you're you're very close to it. Motorsport, we used to take a bit of a step back, and we do lots of different types of stories. And, and uh, yeah, I ended up doing some rally co-driving with Jardine, uh, Tony Jardine, and um, there was a the, the video you're talking about is the logs, obviously one. So I was reading reading the pace notes on the stage. I'd got a bit behind as I as I knew I would at some point, and Tony had said you will get behind and the, there was a big, in capital letters next to one of my notes, it said logs, which I was supposed to warn Tony about, um, but I got there too late. The logs were actually passing our car as I as I got to it, so I just said logs, obviously, which um, <laughs> seems to have become a bit of a catchphrase for me, so uh, it'll probably be on my, my tombstone when I die, the way things are going, but that was, that was fun. Um, didn't think I'd ever enjoy 
rally co-driving, but it was a great experience with Tony. Um, we never actually finished a rally. We did two. The first one, we had a mechanical failure, and the second one, we crashed out. Um, I'd got lost and stopped reading the notes, and we ran into a ditch, and Tony got very, very cross and um, said some very naughty words. I think that when you give a school child a dressing down for not doing their homework or something, they're going to have the expression you had while Tony was... Uh, yes gently explaining his dissatisfaction with what yes. just happened i did look like a, <laughs> like a naughty schoolboy was about to get the cane so um that was a great experience a couple of other things that were real um privilege and things that i'll always take with me uh i convinced um, a friend who works for ferrari to to lend me a ferrari 458 and he flew out with me to 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 sicily to retrace the targa florio and we had two glorious days driving around um the targa florio course and i'd before I went, I spoke to Brian Redman and Vic Elford on the phone, both really helpful. And Elford even got me to pull up Google Maps to talk me around the circuit and show me key corners and places where you know, he'd lost the lost the tyre um, during his famous win when he had the comeback. That was a, the sort of thing that you can only do in this, this sort of world, <laughs> this sort of job. Um, and a fan- fantastic car driving around this, this wonderful place. And we also got to meet um, Baccarella that day so um i'd organized through vic to meet um a local chap who um is a friend of vic's who knew vaccarella very well and he he uh he met us for lunch and then said and so now we go to see nino and i was like really he goes yeah yeah we can go see him so we drove into palermo and i was in this bright yellow ferrari 458 um the the metallic paint job was 15k alone and you have to sign lots of bits of paper when you have to, when you when you borrow a ferrari um so that was terrifying palermo was not a city for a Ferrari, and took took us to this uh, very uh, inane-looking apartment block um, up in a tiny lift, and this, the door opened, and there was this this old man with big eyes, shirt open to the navel, and a big Ferrari medallion dangling <laughs> from his neck. Welcome to Sin, and he spoke sort of pigeon English, and um, he got out his photo albums and was looking through pictures, black and white pictures of uh, racing drivers from the past. And because I recognised enough of them, he was like, oh, okay. And so we, we, we got into sort of a, a, a stilted conversation, but a very entertaining one. And that was a real privilege to, to be in the home of Nino Vaccarella, the, the, the king of the Targa Florio. That was, that was fantastic. You should have asked him for some teaching advice, because wasn't he a teacher? He was a teacher, stage? that's right. That's right, yeah, amazing. So, um, and, uh, so that, was, that was a real privilege. And um, another one that I'll, I'll mention briefly, I don't want this to be all about me, but yeah, anyway, this is... This is a, the ego running out I of know, control. running out of control. But um, I did a WEC race at uh, Austin, I think it was 2012. Um, oh no, it was it 13? It was it was it was McNish's championship year, so third, 13. 13, yeah. And uh, I'd basically convinced Audi and Martin Pass, the the, the PR man at, uh, at Audi, to um, let Alan come on a road trip with me after the race on the Monday and Tuesday, and do a bit of a Texas road trip. Uh, the idea being that you get the driver away from the environment of of the circuit and uh on his own and you might get a more interesting interview uh and um it'd be a nice sort of road trip story and you couldn't only you couldn't do this with many drivers but alan was one of those guys i thought this this would work with and he's, he's known me long enough that he said yes to doing it and um he was on work time there's no there's no getting around it uh and again i wouldn't i wouldn't like to say i'm i'm alan mcnish's best mate i'm not we get on well um, but we had a really great two days. I tried to find a route that would take in interesting places, so we we visited uh, a town about an hour and a half 
west of Austin, which is basically was a German settlement in in the pioneering nineteenth century, and is still very German, which was quite interesting for an Audi driver. So we had Bratwurst for lunch, <laughs> and then we went to is that a contractual s- obligation for the Yeah, exactly. We went to San Antonio, and we visited the Alamo, and and he was really interested in the history there. And we had, we had the full tour of the Alamo, uh, and then we went to Corpus Christi, which is obviously in the news this at the moment through the um, the Houston storms, uh, the storms that hit Texas. It was an interesting trip for lots of reasons. Had lots of time with him, talked about all sorts of things. Some of it on the record, some of it off the record, obviously. And he was great company. But I was very aware that we were on a period of his time, his life, when he was considering retirement. And he'd won the Austin race, which had basically given him and uh, Christensen and um, Duval, I think. Yep. Now on the on the way to a world title. And I thought I'll save the retirement stuff until the second day. So I didn't want to go in first question, you know. And we talked about it at quite some length, and he talked about how much he admired Jackie Stewart for walking away at the top of his his powers in '73. Um, and it it would been very interesting, very interesting. And the, the interview I put together, I took all the pictures for the for the piece as well. We had a lot of fun doing the pictures. Real great experience, and something I'm very proud of that that story. And we we did, made him guest editor for the issue, so he came into the office after that, and we did some stuff in the office. And the, that issue of motorsport was a celebration of Alan McNish and sports car racing, and uh, it was it was great to put together. Just as it came out, he he announced his bloody retirement. And I was like, oh, why didn't you tell me? You know, he hadn't. <laughs> he was never going to tell a journalist. It's the biggest decision a racing driver is ever going to take. And even though we got on well and we had that time together, he was never going to tell me. But he did tell me afterwards. He t- he did say sorry, which was quite sweet of him. <laughs> he didn't have to say sorry at all. He was, you know, um, but he did say that um, that trip had actually sort of started to galvanise the thoughts of retirement while he was on that road trip. That he'd won the road day race the day before. The title was now within reach. And it, you know, the, the thoughts were swirling around his mind. So it's quite interesting that, in a, in a small way, I, I I was I was there during during this critical time of a, a driver that I respected a great deal. Um, was a great sports car driver of his era. You know, one of the, one of the best of his of his time. And uh, that was the kind of privilege that this this job gives you. So uh, sorry for banging on about motorsports so much, but uh, it was a big part of my life. But that that was a that was a great experience. Well, there's a lot to be said for retiring at the top of your game. So that's what you're doing now, isn't it? Oh, exactly, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I think I peaked. So uh, um, no, I suppose I, we, we should have you as an autosport brand ambassador for the rest of time, shouldn't we? That's what that's what seems to happen yeah, to some of these drivers. Maybe, maybe so. You know, I mean, I, I want to keep in touch with with people in the sport, and certainly you guys here at, at, uh, at Autosport. Um, I'm quite looking forward to seeing the sport from the outside perspective again. Um, it's fascinating, that isn't it? Because it's something like I can't do it. Yeah, one day I will, I'm sure. But it, it's you just can't do it. You, yeah, we can't quite see what the fans see. No, exactly. No, um, I think um, it's very important for us to to remember the fan perspective. Um, I think it's very important for us in our privileged position to give the view inside the sport that's what we're paid for is to be is, isn't to be sitting in the grandstands it's to be in the paddock talking to people directly um but i'm i'm quite in, going to enjoy the fact that i can now go back to watching races from the outside perspective looking in uh with the knowledge that i've gained over the past 20 years obviously coloring that um but um i'll be still enjoying motor racing from a, from a distance now well, I wish you all the best. And I should say on behalf of everyone at Autosport, thank you for your contributions over the, the past 20 years. I made the joke about you being kind of Mansell in his third stint. I'd like to think of this more as Mansell's Adelaide win for Williams in 94. That's, 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 a, bit, that's a nicer have, one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. and you, you've turned down the McLaren chance and yeah. you're going out, on a, going out on a high. I'll take that, Ed. And, and I'd also like to thank you very much for giving me this opportunity to, to, to 
blather on about myself for for the last hour or so, but also to the whole team here at Autosport for being so great this year. It's been a, a privilege to be part of the brand again and part of the title, working on the mag and the the website, and uh, long may it continue. Well, there's a good chance now for me to tell you how you can continue to follow motorsport while you're on the outside. You can read autosport.com. Please do, yes. Autosport plus subscriber area, you know, for just, I think it's 94p a week, all the very best writing. F1 Racing Magazine, obviously a sister title, Motorsport News, all these great tasks to be following. Autosport Magazine out every Thursday. I'd also encourage everyone at home to take up those opportunities. There won't be so many chances to read Damien Smith. He's one of the people who's made a, a big contribution to Autosport over the years, and it's nice to be able to, to mark that with this. So all the best for your future career. Thanks, Ed. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. The Just Because deal. Hey, oh, what's this? Breakfast from Mickey D's. From me? Yep. Why? Because it's morning and you like McDonald's. Let's eat while it's hot. There's a deal for every act of kindness at McDonald's. You don't need a reason when the one and only hot and melty sausage McMuffin with egg is just $2.50. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.